Welcome to Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Robin Hansen, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Welcome. Great to be here. No, thank you. Thank you for joining. So I have had a fascination with your work since I first read Age of M, which completely blew my mind about the possibility of emulated human beings. Uh, and, and then now your more recent book, Elephant in the Brain, which again was fascinating in a different, different realm. I'd love to get into both of it, <laughs> if we're in both of them, should I say? I'll follow uh, your lead. And uh, yeah, and then uh, there's some other interesting points I've picked up from your blog, which we might get into. Um, but before we blow people's mind with Age of M, which uh, if it has anything, the material in that, if it, and it has anything like the impact uh, on the listeners it did me, then uh, I'm sure that will be fascinating. Um, and before we go there, let's, let's, let's touch on your latest book, Elephant in the Brain, which you co-wrote with Kevin Simler. And, uh, well, I suppose what's the, I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the line which really struck me from that book is this idea of we're outsiders in our own minds, right? Um, that was a line from, maybe you could just start well, with an elaboration of the premise of the, of the book. Uh, so the, the key idea of the book is that you're just wrong about your motives for a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the first layer of the book is trying to make it theoretically plausible why that might be true, why humans might be creatures who could be wrong about their motives a lot for a lot of things. But abstractly, that doesn't take you that far. It just means that in principle, sometimes you could be wrong. <laughs> to convince you you're actually wrong a lot, we go through 10 areas of life. And in each area, say, uh, here's the standard story that people have about their motives. Here's how that doesn't work or make sense of a lot of their de details of their behavior. And finally, we offer an alternative explanation for the most common typical motive that does make more sense of those details, which is not what you usually think. Okay. So where's the best place to start of those 10? What's the most, sort of the most compelling for, for our audience, potentially? Well, it depends on whether you want something they're the most likely to believe or the least likely to believe. <laughs> Uh, so, so if we start with something they're the most likely to believe, perhaps, right. we could start with, uh, say, laughter, uh, where we'd say, um, if you ask people, why do you laugh, uh, they will mostly say, because it's funny, <laughs> or, or be befuddled and not really know why they laugh, which you should be puzzled by, because <laughs> it's a big part of our lives. And uh, the explanation we say makes sense of the details is that it's a play signal. That is, uh, laughter is a way we say we're still playing. So animals play, and in play, they do stylized versions of real-world behaviors like chasing and fighting, uh, but they're not supposed to really hurt each other. And so they need a way to notice that if someone seems to be getting hurt, that they could laugh and say, no, no, nobody's really hurt here. We're still playing. It's all good. And humans play a lot with social boundaries and social rules. And so we laugh when we seem to be getting near the edge of something that somebody could think of as violating a social rule, violating a norm. Uh, but when we all kind of know uh, nobody takes that seriously here and nobody's going to be challenging you on it. And so uh, this makes sense of a number of details such as uh, we laugh 30 times more often when we're around other people. When there's speakers and listeners, the speaker laughs 50% more often, uh, only less than 20% of the time when they're laughing is it anything like a joke. And we laugh at things like uh, don't drop the soap in the prison shower. Uh, we often show a remarkable lack of empathy and concern in, in our laughter. Uh, 
because, you know, what's so funny about prison rape exactly? Well, the thing that's funny is that you and I aren't going to get raped because we're not in prison. So uh, we are, we feel safe. <laughs> so by I love the fact that five minutes into this podcast that we, we've hit prison rape. <laughs> Uh, you know, and and so we often, I mean, you know, it's a common refrain that people seem to violate social rules through jokes and laughter. And, you know, somebody else might say, that's just terrible. And somebody else, and they would respond, we're just joking. Can't you take a joke? Don't you have a sense of humor? And that allows you to evade. And, and we use laughter to evade rules, but not really. I mean, so for example, we have rules against insulting each other. Uh, but in laughter, you can play insult, and it's okay because. It's just play insulting. Of course, play insults are effectively insults. <laughs> if, you, if you point out somebody's major flaw while play insulting them, you, you did point out their major flaw, <laughs> uh, but it's okay because it's laughter. And so, of course, often we use laughter then as a way to uh, evade the rules against doing things like insulting uh, because we can say it, it doesn't count because it's in, in play mode. Right. Yeah, because I always understand. I, I always understood laughter as being a response to incongruity, right? It's we, we expect one thing to happen and something else happens. And, uh, right, right, and that's a common explanation, response. but it, it doesn't go very. It doesn't work very much because, of course, there's a great many incongruous things that we don't laugh at. Right, there's a great many things we do laugh at that aren't incongruous. I mean, what's so incongruous about prison rape exactly? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well. I, okay. I mean, it, it happens, it's real, and it's bad. Right. I mean, the main, the main incongruous thing about it is that we're safe. Right. And, okay, so I see why you started it, or perhaps why you started So this is maybe slightly easier for people to accept. Okay, we laugh for different reasons um, right. than we might well, expect. And mainly because they often just don't have a theory of why they laugh. Mm. Uh, but that should be puzzling to you. I mean, it's an important phenomenon. Well, why don't you even know why you're doing it? Um, so for many or other things, we do have theories that are wrong, and then you'll be a, a bit more resistant to uh, rejecting the right. theories, depending. Yes, exactly. And and in fact, well, that's where you you, you talk about shame. Uh, sorry, ugly motives and pretty motives, right? Right. Yeah. Although we think the most fundamental things is is norm evasion, uh, or norm violation evasion. That is, uh, so so the key theoretical idea is that our, our conscious minds are mainly press secretaries. They're not the president or king of the mind. They don't make the decisions. They, they make up excuses for why the decisions were acceptable. And so the main job is to watch out for ways people could accuse us of violating norms. And many of those norms are expressed in terms of motives, like it's okay if I hit you accidentally, not okay if I hit you on purpose. And so we're constantly trying to set up a story about what, what we were doing and what our motives were so that we can stay safe from accusations that we violated norms. So that's the most fundamental you know, drive that we have there is to avoid these norm violations. But of course, most of the m motives that would get us into trouble would be low, ugly motives. <laughs> and the prettier motives tend to be uh, much harder to, uh, to violate a norm with them. Right. And because humans have theory of mind, uh, you know, we, we can appreciate that other people have an, 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 an intrinsic motivation that that because that's true of human beings, we have an incentive to somehow hide what's really motivating us. That's the idea. Right, or, or just create this press secretary whose job is to put on a good face and then it doesn't need to hide anything because it doesn't really know. Right, we sort of, okay. <laughs> it, right. 
it trick we we trick ourselves into it so we're not we're right. not consciously hiding so, anything I mean, so so the president actually doesn't work very hard to hide things from the press secretary it's pre his press press secretary right <laughs> it just doesn't tell them <laughs> okay and then, and then they don't know and then their job is to make up a good explanation and they do right okay okay now, sometimes maybe the press secretary needs to look away from some things or not pay too much attention to some details if they were tempted to but the president tells the press secretary, you know, say this or present this. And well, they don't even need to say that. They, they just, you know, they don't actually have to do much of that. Uh, the press secretary just sees the behavior and says, what, what would be a good explanation here? Okay. Right, okay, yeah. And, uh, you know, with, with the, giving the benefit of the doubt, what would be the, the most plausible yet uh, positive spin on the behavior and and that's what we do to ourselves we are we're looking for plausible you know positive enough spins on our behavior and okay so in, okay in that sense we don't know so nobody needs to tell us what to say that's what we're job is is to make up stories right okay so the okay so the press secretary is telling the world why it is we're doing the things that we're doing Right, and, and that's and human, humans are just on. in this habit of, so we talk about these split brain experiments that were done a half century ago, where uh, brains were split, you know, human brains are split in half. So there's two separate halves of the brain now that don't directly talk to each other. Each half controls one arm, one leg, one eye, one ear. And then you could tell one half of the brain, you know, stand up, and then it would use its half of the body to stand up. And you could ask the other half of the brain, why did you stand up? And the consistent observation was you would they would always make up something that they confidently believed they didn't really know why they stood up but it, it was unacceptable not to have a reason to stand up if you were initiating standing up surely you had a reason and so they would just make up a reason but they weren't aware that they were making it up it was just the natural thing to do to have a reason for why you do things hmm. and, and that's, that's who you are <laughs> you are a creature who's ready to make to ready to give an explanation for everything you're doing whether and you know or not right and that's the press, press secretary's job is constantly coming up with this is right. why i'm doing this and to make it appear that it most of the time to make it appear like it's coming from a pretty motive from a from a good place or at least not an ugly one at least not one that will get you in trouble for violating a rule right and so what's some examples of that then of the press secretary at work where we where we hide the ugly motive well, just the fact that you constantly think you have an explanation for why you're doing most everything. I can pick most everything you do and I say, why did you do that? And you will have a confident explanation. Uh, and the thing is, you don't realize that you might be wrong. You're not very aware of the fact that you, in fact, uh, might well be wrong about that explanation. Mm. Because, you, in fact, there's a lot of things you do you don't really know why you do. Yeah. Um, yeah. One example of that was actually from the book was it you do, that, that struck me was when we hold hands in a restaurant with our partner. Now I, that always struck, oh, it's because I want to be affectionate with my partner and, you know, I'm right. being nice. And, you know, it might also yeah, want to mark like, your territory. Right. That's it. It's a, it's a tie <laughs> signal. You know, this is telling the other males around me that this is my woman. Right. And of course, women, women do that too, uh, mark their territory. And we do it, of course, much more in public. 
than in private. Exactly. And, and, and I thought that's absolutely true. You know, sometimes I'll hold uh, my, my partner's hand at the dinner table at home, but it's 10% of the time that I do it when I'm <laughs> right. out exactly. in a restaurant. And, I, and that, I'm totally not conscious of that. And if you ask me, well, why do I hold a hand? I'd say something pretty, like, well, I, you know. Well, be you, you, you might say it's a message to her. You'd be less willing to acknowledge it's a message to all these other people. Right. And and was and ultimately, you know, do we is there a problem with that? So uh, we were evolved to not know these things. <laughs> so um, evolution guessed it was in our best interest not to know these things. So that means if we're in a situation that's similar enough to what evolution anticipated, we're better off not knowing these things. So by telling you these things in our book, we are doing you a disservice <laughs> if you are, you know, in the sort of situation that evolution anticipated for you. Now, so it might be that evolution didn't quite anticipate your situation. That is, you have a stronger need to know that, than it, it could guess. It could be that you are in a profession or a role where you especially need to understand people, like being a manager or a salesperson. Or it could be that you are a social scientist or policy analyst. Uh, because most of social science and policy tends to take these standard motives at face value and do most of their analysis based on that. So most analysis of school that tries to reform and make school better assumes that it's about learning the material and so works on finding ways to teach you more material faster that you retain longer. And for decades, education researchers have done that. And they've collected a lot of ways that, in fact, schools could help people learn things more, better, longer. But there's been almost no interest in adopting those reforms. Uh, and plausibly, it's because we kind of know that that's not really what we're there for. Uh, and what we're really there more is to show off our intelligence and conscientiousness and conformity and, and modern work habits. And it does a good job of that. And if education researchers could be more open that that's really what it was for, they could focus their reform efforts on those things, and then we might be more interested in their reforms. So policy and, and social science has gone very wrong, we say, because it consistently, naively accepts our, at face value our standard stories about why we do things. So that's why we think our book is revolutionary or, or has a, should have a big impact. So. The book is classified as psychology, and it's been refereed and reviewed by psychologists who basically say, yes, the basic thesis is well known, and there's nothing new here in that, which is true. Uh, it's well accepted that people can easily not know their motives. What's not well accepted is that in these 10 areas specifically, we're actually wrong about our motives, and that's making policy and social science go wrong. So that's where there's the big impact, we hope, in convincing people that we are actually wrong about many specific motives that are big and important. Right. And how but, have you... But we've had trouble getting that sort of engagement. Yeah, that again, was going to be my question. It, because, because it's classified as psychology, the policy people and the other people don't feel they need to engage it. I mean, maybe, you know, we're not prestigious enough, perhaps. Uh, it's, it's in somebody else's field, so why about, you know, what's the point? Right, and then presumably, if I'm an educational psych, I don't know, policymaker, and I'm being told that you know the real motive of the education system is to I don't know, indoctrinate children into being compliant corporate citizens or something, and I don't want to, I don't want to go public and say 
that's been the agenda all along and we were never really about helping kids learn it's, an, right. it's a huge psychological hurdle right for, for those people well, yeah, yeah. i mean in any research area there will be some beliefs or conclusions that will be pleasant sounding to uh, the public and your patrons uh, even if the evidence doesn't support them and, and all researchers face this choice whether to embrace the pleasant sounding conclusions that their patrons and and students and you know, public would like to hear versus the ones that their evidence and research leads to. So we say, yes, that might sound better, but your duty as a researcher is to follow the evidence and arguments. And if that leads to conclusions that don't sound as good, it's your job still to go there. Right. But of course, they don't have to do their job <laughs> because uh, their job is just one of the things we say about what they're supposed to be doing, right? So, I mean, this goes back to research. What's the point of research? Well, there's a thing we say, research is supposedly about advancing the state of the art and understanding of the world, you know, for practical and aesthetic application. But of course, that might not really be why research is there. The right. real motives, yeah, the real motives of researchers could be to create and, and accumulate prestige. And the real motives of other people associated with researchers might be to associate with that prestige. And it might not be about research project progress at all. And you're open about that in the book, right? Your own right, yes. Okay, motives. <laughs> we we try to be, yes. And so, and, and so that's interesting. What have you uncovered uncovered about yourself that you didn't like as a result of the book? So, so I actually don't think it's that good an idea to focus on this book as a self help book. Right. Okay. And I think no and I think you know it's very hard. So we all have a limited budget of honesty. We're not actually capable of very much of it. So you should ask where to spend this limited budget. And our recommendation is that you focus on the average behavior of people in the world and come to understand how most people are. And then as a last step, you know, assume that you're like that. <laughs> you're just like everybody else. Now, you might be different from everybody else, and, and you could go some distance into trying to probe that and figuring that out, but you will spend your honesty budget quickly there. So first spend it on getting clear on the average behavior of everybody and then good luck trying to be more honest about yourself <laughs> uh, right. because it'll be really hard. You're, you're, you're all these things inside you will resist and they will, all these powers inside you will come up with excuses and explanations and then ways to believe that you're better than everybody else. Right. And you would say that's not so much of a cop out. That's more about spending your honesty budget wisely. <laughs> Right, because, I mean, from our point of view, if you're a policy analyst or social scientist, understanding yourself isn't really that important. It's not your priority. Your priority is to understand the typical person uh, because that's what your policies will mostly influence. Okay. So, so the way not to cop out is just start with the presumption you're like everybody else. <laughs> and, right. and, de and demand strong evidence to believe otherwise. Right. Okay. Don't be tricked into your giving yourself the benefit of the doubt or something. Um, hold, hold yourself to a pretty high standard of, of what will it take to believe that you're, you're substantially different. Right. But I have to admit, I, and maybe it's a tendency in me, I, I, I tried to view this through a lens of self-help and I was asking myself, okay, so Richard, you know, you tell yourself you're doing this podcast to sort of bring a deeper conversation to the business world and, you know, society in general. Really, this is about prestige, isn't it? And this is about, you know, becoming... Better well, known and making more money. Yeah. yeah, if that would be your most plausible explanation for somebody else doing such a thing, then it should be your first cut guess at yourself. Yes, but 
you don't need to focus on that. There's not necessarily a lot to gain. So, I mean, what's happening here, of course, is the whole reason that we have these hidden motives that we're trying to defend ourselves against accusations that we're violating norms. So, so your subconscious hears this as an accusation against yourself, and its first response is to want to defend itself against the accusation, because that's that's really what your whole job is. Your conscious mind's whole job is to defend itself against these sort of accusations. So, by by hearing this and applying it to yourself, you you suddenly have this huge crisis, you know. Do I have to admit that I violated norms? And if so, what are, what are the consequences of that for you know all my relationships with people and, and you know et cetera, my reputation that that I've been working all this time to defend myself against these violations? And here am I supposed to like in one fell swoop admit to all of them? <laughs> you know that that seems quite risky, right? And of course, if you really push on that, your subconscious will come up with lots of explanations for why you're different and better. Mm. It's not like the press secretary resigns; they just exactly. work harder, <laughs> or, or or find the the thing. They might like dismiss this whole book, dismiss this whole field. You know, you know, psychology's had a lot of problems with replications. Who, who, we can't trust psychology. This is based on psychology, right? You can't believe any of that stuff. And who are these two people, right? Are, are they psychologists? No, one's an economist, one's a software engineer. Just forget it. And if it was serious, it wouldn't be written in a serious journal. I mean, what's this popular book stuff? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so easy, really. So don't push too hard, because you might throw the whole thing out. I suppose. Yeah. Well, you, you pick your battles again that you can win. Of course, mm. that's the usual. Your subconscious will beat you if you fight it head on. Right. Okay. <laughs> you can't win that one. Right. Well, I can. I suppose, where do I go with that? I go with, I can sort of understand that where, to the extent to which there are sort of, the mind is is structurally uh, configured such that that's a battle you'll never win. But then I think there are specific sort of aspects of my own subconscious that I've delved in a therapeutic sense and got some right. result, re resolution there, which have had lasting benefits, I believe. So it's like, so for sure. me, it's, a, it's, it's worth going there, but maybe it's, as you say, but pick your battle. One at a time, perhaps. So, like, pick one of these areas and try to get more honest about your motives in that particular area. And then, as that, as you consolidate your gains there, uh, then you could move on to another one. And as you've consolidated your gains in that second one, go back and look at the first one and see if your subconscious like subverted everything and pulled you back to the first status quo, <laughs> or whether you you actually you know retain those gains. Right. Um. The other domain you picked up, which, I, which which caught my interest, was uh, was art and 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 how we evaluate art. Would you like to say a bit more about that? Yeah. So um, the standard story that we say about art is that it's about the experience art produces. So music or movies or painting, or even a, a decoration of a room, uh, if it's artistic, uh, we say, well, the reason it's artistic. The whole point of it is the experience it produces them. Now, that might be an experience of beauty, but there are many other kinds of experiences that art might produce inside you. But the whole claim is that art produces artistic experiences, and that's the point of art. So your reason you might buy a painting is that you can stand in front of it and see the image, and that produces the experience in you. Uh, and that's the standard explanation that we give in our society for what art is for. Um, now, there's a number of features of art that don't entirely make sense from this point of view. Uh, first of all, we care a lot more, a, a lot about features of art that don't affect the experience. We want to watch, see the original painting, not a copy. 
Uh, if the Mona Lisa burnt to ash, we'd rather go see the ashes than see a replica of the Mona Lisa. Uh, we care about how many artists produced a thing. We care about whether the method was difficult and the, ex the materials were expensive. So before photography, uh, we, people really valued highly realistic paintings. And after photography, uh, they didn't value those realistic much, nearly as much because it was much easier to produce. And so they went in the abstract direction. Um, today, lobster is a delicacy. And we enjoy the experience of lobster especially, but you know, a century and a half ago, lobster was so plentiful, there were rules against serving it to prisoners too many days a week, as it was so cheap. Uh, it's still the same taste, but we value the scarceness of the um, thing. So we could say more plausibly what art is, is a way to, uh, from the creator's point of view, show off capabilities and abilities to um, create experiences. And on the other side, to show the discernment to tell which kind of art uh, produces which experiences and which kind of art is difficult and hard uh, that reflects well on its maker. And this helps understand a lot of the features of art that don't make sense from the point of view of it just being a way to produce an experience. Mm. Yeah. That we we care about how difficult it was and how right. rare those skills are. Yeah, and we switch around what art we create is important as we switch which things are difficult and which kinds of skills we have come to value. You know, centuries ago, um, most art was canonical in the sense that the artists wanted to be like the best artists and to be very similar to them and they, to become this ideal artist. And in the last century or two, we've much more switched to idiosyncrasy and authenticity that each artist is different. And we want the, each artist to find the striking difference that they have and emphasize that uh, to create unique idiosyncratic art. Um, because that's the kind of abilities we more value today. We, we less value becoming part of a standard package that you are like a bunch of other people who are really good at something. And we more value each person becoming different in a unique way. Right. Which explains why we value modern art often, which seemingly requires very little skill. L little skill of the common sort <laughs> uh, that you might, you know, com easily compare people by which they might be standardized, say brush stroke control or something. Uh, and we emphasize the skills by which they might be quite different. Hmm. And why do you think we, and so why do we have a problem not just accepting that and saying, well, we value things that were hard to do? Well, fundamentally, uh, our distant ancestors had a norm against bragging. And this is causing a lot of these uh, hidden motives because a lot of what we do is in fact bragging. Uh, and since we're not supposed to brag outright, we have to brag indirectly. Humble brag, as they might say. And so um, you have to have other reasons. So, you know, the reason, the obvious reason to be an artist is to brag about your artistic ability, like your reason to be an athlete, reason to be an intellectual. Uh, but since you're not supposed to be bragging, bragging violates norm. You find these other reasons to be doing what you're doing and indirectly brag. Hmm. And yeah, so I mean, you're not supposed to be admiring a braggart. 
you're not supposed to appreciate a braggart. You're supposed to resist a braggart. And so if you admire someone who's bragging, you have to have another excuse for what you're admiring. It isn't the bravado and the braggart. It's something else. And of course, they, it's even better if they can pretend they're not bragging. Right, like the athlete who stands on the pogo, and, you know, I, I do this to inspire the next generation of dot, dot, dot sport, right? Right, right. Building team skills, working together, health. Uh, I'm doing this to make my family proud. Or, no. National unity, for sure. Yeah. yeah, in fact, we just heard that with the, the, the English soccer team. Indeed, the world just yesterday. Us. You're right. And uh, yeah, and from the manager, it was all about uniting the country and bringing right. different parts of England together. To and celebrating excellence. <laughs> Which, of course, on the other side is bragging about your excellence. Right. And he's talking, you know, and his desire to make, I don't want to pick out one individual because, of course, we all do it, but and his, his desire to have an impact, you know, in the game, not... All right, sure. And, and wanting to have an impact, of course, is a as a fine way to focus outside yourself uh, on. But of course, what you're, what you're actually doing is focusing on the fact that you are having a bigger impact than other people. And you are able to have that impact that says speaks well to you. And what, what's our aversion to braggards? Why don't we, why don't we like braggards? Well, uh, there's a great book called Hierarchy in the Forest by Bohm from a uh, couple decades ago now, but um, the, the basic story is that human foragers, the way we lived for a million years until 10,000 years ago, were quite egalitarian. Uh, human, uh, and that was quite different than, say, chimpanzees and other primate groups. In chimpanzees, they, they form dominance hierarchies. There's a dominant coalition, and it beats up on the rest, and it grabs the best food and mates and protection from predators. And humans instead tried to create an egalitarian norm of everybody against anybody who would stand above us. And so for human foragers, uh, they have a strong norm that nobody, sh nobody brags. Well, nobody dominates in particular. Nobody says, I'm stronger than the rest of you, so the rest of you have to do what I say now. Uh, you're, you're definitely supposed to resist that. That's the tyrant that we're all supposed to hate. And... Uh, so dominance is, is terrible. Nobody's supposed to hit people or threaten to hit people or threaten to use their strength. Prestige is okay. We're allowed to admire people and, and to, and to uh, follow them and to want to learn from them as long, but they can't be trying to gain from that in, in a direct way. And so we're supposed to share food. Uh, we're supposed to even you know do things to hide who's a better hunter or gatherer so that we, we aren't trying to show that. And any way that somebody seems to be trying to put themselves up higher than other people, uh, is, is very quickly knocked down. Yeah, among the foragers that we've seen who, who remain nearest the ancient lifestyle in, in the last century, they are very fiercely egalitarian and, and fiercely looking out for any brag, any, any tendency to brag or to uh, put yourself up, especially to brag about your ability to dominate. And this is an ancient human tendency. Now, with the introduction of farming, we became less egalitarian, but we still retained a lot of these norms, and uh, they continue on today. Uh, but of course, the norms are only weakly enforced, and we tolerate, you know, people actually bragging as long as they don't do it directly. Okay, like the football manager who says it's about having an impact in the game, and yeah, sure, of course, no impact. Okay, and the same for I mean, since you're in management and consulting, um, this is an important issue for managers because we have this norm against dominating. Managers often have to set themselves up as prestigious instead of dominant. 
managers are in fact dominant in the sense they they can give you orders and you have to do what they say or quit the job <laughs> but they try as hard as possible to avoid being that direct uh, to the extent they can they will make recommendations about how you do things and make suggestions and instead of showing off their dominance like showing off that they can make you you know scrub the floor with a toothbrush or whatever <laughs> they they just try to project prestige and so you we, we hire managers who are articulate and handsome and uh charismatic and and uh, you know admired in, in them as many ways as can be and so that people will then naturally follow them with prestige because each each person who's the subordinate of a boss doesn't want to be seen as submitting to dominance so they'd rather be seen as following prestige so it's in their interest to find something about their boss to admire so that they can avoid the sense that they are submitting to dominance and so right because they're, they're they're also beholden to the norm exactly and so that's why many people might think that most bosses are are bad and that most people are bad to have bosses, but their boss is okay. I mean, it's similar with politicians as well. Most people think that most politicians are corrupt and it's bad to be under their thumb, but of course my politician's okay and I like them. Uh, and that's the way we often deal with dominance. We, we, we pretend it isn't dominance and call it prestige. Right, and that's why it's often the taller, more handsome candidates. Right, right, exactly. right. Okay, and so a, I mean, it's a role for management. That might be true. Right? right. So this is a role for management, in the sense that one of the main roles of management is just to be prestigious enough that people can willingly submit to your dom to your dominance and not call it dominance. And it's not necessarily about the orders you give, or the plans you make, or the you know speeches you give or the strategies you pick, it could just be about the fact that you have the features that qualify you to, as, to be prestigious, and that qualifies you as someone they can submit to without shame. Wow, which, which could be one explanation for that. Was it Kahneman who first discovered that the, the correlation between CEO performance and company performance was actually very weak? Right, but you still pay the CEOs a lot, and they're still yeah. important because uh, it's maybe it's less about what they do and more about just who they are. Right. And it takes a special, well, I, I can see now that many of those qualities might be associated with their ability to protect prestige, but, and there's something about being resilient in the, in the stress of that role. Right. I mean, it, it's in fact, it's a hard role. <laughs> I mean, the, the demands we usually put on such people in such roles are really quite large. <laughs> So being able to handle that those demands with grace and charisma and and uh, confidence uh, shows a lot about someone. Hmm. Most of us wouldn't handle it very well. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I suppose. I suppose. Uh, yes. It's. Um... It's, it's a fascinating idea. So, you know, we could easily do a sequel to this book in the sense that we cover 10 big areas of life, but there's probably at least another 20 or 30 that we could cover. And of course, there are many in business that, that you could focus on. There are many hidden motives in business, no doubt. Uh, you know, we've just talked about one, sort of the hidden motive of, of what, what you hire a manager for, what the managers are for. But there's a great many others, for example, what are meetings for? because it's been widely observed that people seem to spend too much time in meetings getting too little done for the purposes they 
they say meetings are for. And there's some other plausible explanations about what meetings are really for. Like? Well, like, uh, you know, reaffirming everyone's commitment to uh, a particular political coalition and uh, who's in charge. Um, you know, so, so my, my first cut explanation for most corporate behavior is it's about political coalitions, you know, helping themselves against rival coalitions. And uh, so you need to have people in your coalition perceived to be influential. And so you, if you have meetings, you want your people at the meetings and you want them, their claims and their influence to seem to be strong. And you want everybody to seem to acknowledge that so that everybody seems to acknowledge that your people and their influence and their positions are the accepted ones. Uh, and so... I mean, it's related to say why the, why you might have less uh, telecommuting. Uh, you know, telecommuters might be more productive at their local task, but they're less effective at projecting the influence of your coalition in the workplace because they're not there at the formal and informal meetings where people are gaining the perception of who's in charge. Right. And that's one of our primary motivators in the workplace. And we, we tell ourselves, uh, you know, I'm about having an impact in the world or making the world a better place right. or, you know, serving the customer or, um, I don't know, improving the quality of the workplace for my colleagues. Sure. Right. And, and you in know, fact, I'm seeking to, perhaps I'm seeking to climb a dominance hierarchy. Right. Though, of course, uh, you know, again, when we talk about the motive, it's not the only motive. So, so we right. should just admit that almost any big complicated area of life, there's thousands of relevant motives. And they all have some degree of, of, of influence. Uh, and there's the motive we say, it isn't the only motive, it's just what we kind of suggest is the, the strongest, most commonly strong motive. And then the other motive we're pointing to is what we say is instead, most commonly the strongest motive. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the only one. And, and that's, in a sense, why these other motives work as excuses, because sometimes they're true. So like mm. we say, um, the dog ate my homework works as an excuse because there really are dogs who sometimes eat homework. <laughs> the dragon ate my homework doesn't work because <laughs> nobody believes you have a dragon who made your homework. You know, that doesn't ever happen. And so, you know, all these other motives you mentioned, they are to some degree true and they vary in by context, and that's why they can work as excuses. You and prove that in one case, it's not true. And sometimes it, yeah, and sometimes it's true. Like sometimes the dog eats the homework. Okay, and that's the thing, that th th this could be the value of a book to a manager, is to be cognizant of that. Right, although of course, you know, again, evolution built you to be ignorant of these things. <laughs> So uh, if you become aware of them, now you will face a trade-off that you might find it harder to like sincerely, naively <laughs> believe what evolution made you to want to sincerely, naively believe. On the other hand, you might find it more easy to, to analyze and understand your role and the people around you and how they relate to you and to customers and suppliers and investors and everybody else. So now you can start to think about well, what are their actual motives you don't, of course, want to tell them their actual motives to their face, but it might help you to uh, deal with them. Right. And this very much echoes a, 
another thinker. There's a guy called Ralph Stacy. I don't know if you've come across him, and he's written a lot on complexity and how we apply it in the workplace and and talks a lot about how a lot of our interactions are dominated by the games we, you know, the games that we're playing with each other. Sure. And we try to understand these interactions through the lens of some sort of strategic business analysis. Uh, but the reality is we've got these the, these games happening between human beings. And he talks about the fact that a lot of his work hasn't really been adopted by the business schools. And what I'm hearing here is, you know, a potential indication as to why that's true is because as a class, as a management class, probably we don't want to accept that these motivations are actually driving a lot of what happens in the workplace. Students uh, might not be that eager to openly acknowledge these motivations. Uh, and therefore schools might not want to. So again, if schools are less about teaching useful things and more about just you know projecting an image, uh, you might wonder, well, do you want to hire politically savvy managers <laughs> or do you want to hire people who are well-connected and well-thought of? Uh, you know, it depends on, you want them to be savvy enough to be your subordinate, perhaps not savvy enough to challenge you, uh, but, um, yeah, so there's an, a book called Power by this Stanford professor, Pfeiffer, uh, I guess, which is also interestingly, you know, forward about these power games that people play in firms. And I presume, you know, many schools are reluctant to teach that openly and directly. I've noticed that uh, ch children... Um, don't like very cynical theories of human behavior and neither do their parents want them to learn it. And that it takes them getting older before they and their parents and other people are more okay with them learning and expressing more cynical theories. So like college freshmen are, are quite un, un, uninterested. College seniors get more interested. Graduate students are more interested. Um, I, I think basically uh, we prefer idealism in the young relative to the old. Uh, it's more okay if a 50-year-old is cynical about many things. It's not okay for a 12-year-old. And, uh, and people respond to those demands by making sure schools teach relatively idealistic accounts to the young and then are willing to teach more cynical accounts to the old. You know, a, a, a room full of 50-year-old uh, you know, people at an MBA sort of refresher program uh, are allowed to be pretty cynical in their accounts in that discussion in the way that a room full of college freshmen are not, or even a set of MBA students is more in, in the middle. And why do you think that is? Why, why is that true? Um, I think it's because we choose associates based on their idealism, and there's more choice going on younger. So you, you, um, you, know, you can relate it to sort of the, the, strat the ideal strategy for um, relationships, say, romantic relationships, you might say. Um, once you're in a relationship, then the strategic stance you want to have is, if you don't treat me right, I'm leaving. Uh, but before you form a relationship, you, the stance you want to give is, if I were to form a relationship, I'd be very reluctant to leave. Uh, because that means, well, you could demand a lot and I'd, I'd put up with it because uh, I'm the sort of person who finds it hard to leave. Once I'm in a relationship, I want to suggest I have a low cost of leaving. I, I could easily leave. I'm, I'm quite willing to do it. But before I form a relationship, I want to project the image that I have a high cost of leaving. So that makes me valuable as someone to, uh, to 
gain in, as a relationship. And so early in life, as you know, generally before we formed many relationships, romantic, business, you know, neighborhoods, uh, clubs, later in life is when we have the relationships and we are trying to negotiate for better treatment within them. Hmm. And so just in general, uh, we have this strategy of, of seeming more idealistic, which is, you know, in large part, having a high cost of, of leaving or betraying relationships. And uh, later on, we want to suggest we have a low cost. And so early on in life, idealism here, I'm, I'm correlating with the idea that you have ideals about how people in relationships are supposed to treat each other. And uh, you would be very reluctant to uh, deviate from those ideals. And therefore, uh, you and you would one of your ideals, of course, is you don't break relationships easily. And you would uh, find it hard to break a relationship. So, again, these are our strategic incentives at the different stages of before and during a relationship. Right. I mean, what comes to mind here is the the transition of people often being more left wing when they're younger and becoming more right wing when they're older. Is that another? Sure. Right. Right. So, I, I mean, stereotypically. You know, the left wing is more expansively inclusive of who it's concerned about and more idealistic about um, how we should treat each other, say, more egalitarian. And the right is more protective and, and, and wary of um, outsiders hurting insiders. And so the right is going to draw a smaller circle around the ones it's going to protect and, and be more suspicious and uh, even, you know, Con conflict with outsiders to protect the insiders. And um, you can see how those would be. <laughs> Again, once you're in a group, uh, that's different than when you're trying to attract somebody to a group, right? Right. Right. So when I'm young, I'm not in a group yet, and I'm trying to convince a group to include me. And so I have to seem that I'm open to them, to that their interests are my interests, that their interests, that they could be good people and trustworthy people and people I would enjoy interacting with. And so, uh, as young, I want to I want to seem that I could join anybody. That I'm quite open to a great many people being reasonable people and good people to join. Uh, then I would, you know, I don't already see them as outsiders that I distrust, and then I'm going to mistreat. It's like, I'm wonderful. You're wonderful. Right. We could easily be together on the same team. Hmm. Uh, whereas later on, when you have your team, you're more trying to assure the people on your team that you are you have their interest at heart and you will protect them and you are suspicious of outsiders. Right. So you're more likely to entertain ideas that people aren't, you know, aren't good. The outsiders definitely. Yeah. But to do that, I, but to do that, you need to, to to be able to adopt a sort of a universal cynicism in a sense, right? You, you, it's difficult to hold that people outside of could be bad and there are not people inside who could be bad. Right, although you'll often pair that with just a strong sense of commitment that on the inside you have, you have committed to them and they've committed to you and you have a sense that uh, you will treat each other well because of that commitment. Right. But you so also suspect that outsiders are committed to other people, not you, and they will treat you badly because of their commitment to other people. <laughs> okay. Okay, I see that. Hmm. Right. Okay. And, and, and uh, has, has there anything, I know you, I know you, this shouldn't be read as a health, self help book, but I can't help going there. Is, there. is there anything else that sort of popped to you in terms of an insight 
of how you run your life or your interactions as a result of this study? Well, again, I'm really not that different <laughs> in most ways. So it still works fine to just understand the typical person and then assume that I'm like them. Uh, honestly, I mean, I am different in some ways, and then it's more puzzling because I have less data about myself. I mean, so most of this is looking at the overall data of human behavior and using that to make judgments about overall motives. And you, I just have, have a lot more data on overall behavior than I do about my idiosyncratic deviations. Okay. So you're not using it, I don't know, in your negotiations in your academic career or anything because the reason I've got people in my head I've got people listening to the podcast <laughs> okay so how do we apply this in life Richard come on well of I mean understanding the people around you and the world around you is is quite valuable in life mm. uh, but you know it, it also means you need to be more forgiving and understanding what, what you know if you see somebody else around you who seems to be a braggart or seems to be selfish or seems to be you know doing things for personal gain or their their thing, their coalition, you might be tempted to be indignant and, and uh, complain loudly of their lack of following ideals. And when you realize that you probably do a lot of that too, you will be a bit more understanding. I could, I could see that. So maybe this guy doesn't have quite as good a press secretary. <laughs> right. I mean, so another thing is that, you know, Many of these things in life where we show off, you can just relax a bit about the fundamentals. So, so we have a chapter on education where we say it's not so much about learning the material. So now you can realize that if you didn't learn so much material or your kids aren't learning so much material, that's not as much of a problem as you thought. Because it's not really about learning the material. We also have a you know, chapter on medicine where you say it's not so much about health. So if you're thinking, what if I have a condition? Have I checked it out? Could doctors help about it? You know, you might realize that they don't help that much. So. Uh, you're not missing out on that much. Right. I, spent, I, I probably can't let that go a little bit. So we probably need to unpack that a bit. So doctors don't help that much. Come on. Also, the usual story we say about why we go to the doctor or hospital is that uh, we can get sick and they can help us get well. And uh, that story just doesn't make sense of a bunch of details. Uh, the most prominent of which is the people who get more medicine are not on average healthier. Uh, at least not much healthier within our precision of measurement. Uh, this is true not only in geographic variations, places where people spend more medicine are not healthier, but we've seen randomized experiments where some people were given more medicine because their price was lower and they chose to get more medicine and those people were not healthier. Um, in addition, we have a lot of other puzzles about medicine that don't fit with the standard theory. We, we are really quite personally uninterested in private information about the quality of medicine and treatments and doctors and hospitals. Uh, we show almost no interest in acquiring such information or listening to it when it's given to us. Uh, we spend more in medicine, all sequel, and other people around us spend more. Um, you know, and then we we tend to want medicine that's expensive and full of complicated technologies, um, especially involve pain and sacrifice. Yeah, there's a great piece in the book <laughs> where you give the verbatim description of the treatment of one of the. English kings, right? And the horrific treatments they received because right. one. And there's a bunch of other things that, that complicated treatment. A bunch of other things correlate with health much more strongly that we show very little interest in. Uh, you know, air quality, living in rural areas, um, exercise, nutrition, sleep. These things have 
much or even being religious and having more friends and social status, these things show much stronger correlations with health and does medicine. And there's very little interest in pushing on those policy levers to get people to be healthier. And why is that? So why do we spend so freely on medical? Well, medicine, we'd say, is a way to show that we care and to let others show they care for us. So it's like a child scrapes their knee and you kiss the boo-boo and say, aw, and they feel better. But there's nothing medical going on uh, other than the usual, showing, letting somebody show you care. We would make an analogy to Valentine's chocolates. On Valentine's, um, you're supposed to give someone you love chocolates. And uh, you don't choose how many chocolates to give based on how hungry they are. You choose it based on needing to spend enough to show you care enough to show that you care more than somebody who doesn't care as much about you as you do. Um, when you choose quality of chocolates, it's not very important any private information you have about that quality. What's important is the commonly perceived quality of the chocolate. So uh, on neither end of the relationship will the private information about quality matter. And if you don't have someone to give you chocolates for Valentine's, <clears throat> you might well buy yourself a box and leave it on the desk at work. <sighs> because you want to be seen as someone who's cared for. Uh, you want to be seen as someone who gets as much care as anybody else does. Right. Okay. And, and we go, so, okay. And back, and back to the doctor point, we go to the doctor because we want to feel like somebody loves us and we want to give somebody the opportunity to show that they love us. Right, it's like buying comfort food when you're traveling or something, uh, just like Mama used to make. <laughs> so um, maybe you, know, you got comfort by Mama making you food and sh her showing you care. She cared by the kind of food she made, and later on, you like to have that same kind of food, even if it's not from her, because it reminds you of being cared for. Okay. So, they could, so for, especially for kids who've been in and out of hospital for whatever reason, there's kids in there, maybe that's the association as well, or doctors. Hmm. Right. Okay. So maybe what can we learn from this? It's okay to go to your doctor and say, hey, if you get the drugs, just give me a hug. <laughs> well, if, if what they used to do wasn't a hug, <laughs> they have to do whatever other people get and whatever you used to get that's an in-your-mind signal that you were cared for. So a, a scowling, uh, aloof doctor <laughs> could show care if that's what you always got to show care and what everybody else gets that shows care, uh, then that's what shows care for you. Right. Right, fascinating. And then the other thing, you, we've touched on education a little bit, but the other statistic that I thought was interesting, that was 80% of education, there was a study that suggested 80% of education was signaling, right? That, um, so I have a colleague, uh, Brian Kaplan, who has a book out called The Case Against Education, and he tries to itemize this, you know, but it's a complicated question, but, but that's his best guess, uh, that um, in terms of, you know, explaining why people who get more school are paid more, you can split that into the fact that people who go to school show they have characteristics they always had, and the characteristics that are changed as a result of school. And apparently, uh, most of the reason people who get paid more for going to school is that they are showing features they always had. They are not creating new features. 
And so um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to school. Uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't send your kids to school. It means that collectively it's a bit of a waste. If we could all cut back together, uh, we could all be better off. Right. So one obvious solution there is to is to s stop subsidizing it so much. Right, yeah. uh, at the state level or as a parent. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, collectively subsidizing it, it you know, you personally are, are in an arms race and you may need to subsidize it if you, the other parents are subsidizing it. So this is a common observation across many of these things where we're signaling as a, is the motive of our behavior, then we are doing too much collectively. And if we could collectively cut back, we'd be better off. But of course, often we push political systems to do the opposite because we're more individually trying to show our concern about something we all think is a good thing. Right. Yeah. So we should subsidize medicine less as well. Um, but still, we do the opposite. And we, we go out of our way to show our devotion to the opposite because we are individually less trying to make the world or the nation better and we're trying to show that we are the right sort of people who have the right sort of attitudes to, to show loyalty to our allies in the mm. political world. Yeah. Yeah, I can say that, yeah, it's a, that's, that's a difficult, yeah, it's a difficult arms race to de-escalate yeah how do you how do you de-escalate from that position that well i mean part of it is that if we could all admit these things were going on then we could take policy responses based on that admission and, and make things better off but of course we're in an arms race to instead of admit what's really going on to show how we're each more idealistic than the next guy in, in politics and so uh we're not very inclined to admit these things collectively in our uh, political forums. Mm. And I suppose, yes, by, by understanding this, at least that's the first step, the more, the more people understand that these are the games that we play. Right, and I don't know if we'll ever get a majority of people to accept or understand these things, but I do think maybe it's time that a minority can understand and pass that on. So. One disturbing observation is that if you look back in history, you will find smart people making observations like the ones we make in this book over and over again <laughs> in many contexts. So it's a, these are apparently insights that many people have discovered over and over again through the centuries. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like they mostly have to rediscover them rather than learn from people who told about them in the past. So a key question is, can we finally start to accumulate insight about this by, by having you know, an ex, a set of experts who know about it and can pass it on to an, the next set of experts? Even if everybody doesn't learn it or admit it. And you know, honestly, so you might say, you know, what, if, what if there's a 20-year-old and they say to you, look, everybody's been lying to me all my life, telling me all this stuff. It doesn't make sense. That's, you know, where, where can I go to find out what's really going on? We, yeah. we would like there to be a book where you say, well, you really want to know what's going on? You sure? Because you might not like it. But if you really think you're sure, there's a book. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, so actually what ha happens more is that in each particular area, the people who know that area best tend to come to these more cynical conclusions about typical motives. So, you know, people who have been educators for their lifetime or doctors for a lifetime 
politicians for a lifetime, they tend to know about the hidden motives in their particular area. They, they know, of course, not to say it too publicly because there are incentives against that, but privately they will mention it to others when they think others are privately willing to hear that. But that means they, we don't collect the knowledge that in lots of different areas, we all think this, <laughs> and to realize it's not just your area, it's all these other areas too, and then to have a way to pass that on. And you know, it's not guaranteed we will succeed in finding a way to pass that on this time, but that to me is the, the big win not just for us to realize it for ourselves and to tell a few people, but to find a way that a group of us can tell it to each other and then build on that and accumulate. That, that's to me the essence of, of intellectuals, you know, actually learning about things and um, having some influence and, and value is that we create a community that can build on these insights and, and can develop it. Right. I can see that. What comes to mind there is a sort of book of confessions. <laughs> so you get like the ex-vice chancellor of Harvard saying, yeah, it's just a proxy for IQ and conscientiousness. And it's, um, right. you know, it's a dumb certificate people pay for because it helps them play the game. But Right. And you see spatterings of this, but then the official organs and, and views don't reflect that. Right. Naturally. Right. But but we there has been change over the centuries in some things so you know in the past most people were pretty superstitious and most official bodies supported that superstition they they said well sure of course there's reasons to be superstitious there really are spirits and there really are gods and they really do punish people and and, and many people of course through the centuries came to suspect that superstition didn't mean anything and there really wasn't anything to it but um, they, their view didn't become the official view that people passed on. And, and now the anti-superstition view is more the official view. Right. Because in some sense, it just looks smarter. <laughs> right. Right. And so in that sense that, you know, the cynical views have that potential win is when the, not, when the idealistic views look really stupid and naive. And that, factor will be more important than trying to seem like you'd be a good partner. Well, it's almost using the same dynamic against itself. So you, you, it, it becomes, you look good if you accept that most of us are motivated by looking good. <laughs> or right, like right. That. And so that does happen in, in many spheres where, um, and, and that's the sort of thing that could help this get a wider purchase. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Fascinating. Okay, well, are you up for are you up for round two on the, <laughs> on your other on your other work? I'm I'm available for the next fifty minutes here. <laughs> okay. So let's so let's talk about your your other book, um, The Age of M, um, and which is a book about a you know what what society might look like or a society of emulated human beings might might look like. Um, so maybe let's start with, you know, should we start with the definition of an M and how we get to an M and, and build up from there? Well, sure. So the general idea is that eventually we'll have robots as smart as people, and then that will make a big difference to society and the economy. And we're wondering what that world would be like. And one way to do that is to break out the future robot scenario into different scenarios based on the kind of technology that makes it happen. And so... An M is short for emulation, and that's a kind of way we might get smart robots. Now, 
it's a way that we haven't been paying as much attention to lately. If you've been reading a lot about robots and AI, pretty much everything you've been reading about is, is via a different path. And, and that's the path where we write software and we write statistical algorithms and, and uh, things that create you know, programs and pieces that are smarter that we then put together uh, to make systems that are smarter. And we've been doing that for 70 years and we'll continue to do that for a while. And that path could be the first, the path that first achieves, you know, widespread robots as smart as people. But it's not the only path that could do it. And my book, Age of M, is actually focused on a different path that's similarly plausible, but it's based on the idea of making an emulation of particular humans and in particular of their brains. So the software that it takes to be smart is already in human brains. <laughs> And so the idea is instead of trying to write other software that mimics the behavior in, in, at the general level of human brains, that is, can do similar things in the abstract, we actually try to copy the software that's in human brains directly and specifically. So it's like porting software. Today, if you have a, a machine running software that you like and you want software like that running on a different machine, you could just stare at what it does and try to guess how it works and write new software, or you can port the software. And one way to do that is to write an emulator on the new machine that makes the new machine look like the old one to the software. And if you can do that, you just move the software. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to rewrite it. So the goal is to do that for the human brain. So to do that, we need to basically emulate the cells in a brain, how they work. So we can take a particular human brain and scan and see where all the cells are and what type they are and where they're connected and map that all out. And then to make an emulation of that brain, we just need to know how to emulate each cell in terms of how it takes signals in, changes state, sends signals out. So if we can combine those two things, we can have a bunch of models of how the cells work. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and a map for the whole brain. Then we could make a computer model of the whole brain that has the same input-output behavior. It signals in and then... A signal goes from one cell to the next cell and then the next cell and changes the state and propagates through and produces the same behavior. So if you could hook that up with artificial eyes, ears, hands, and mouth, then it would act the same way in the same situation as the original. Now, we're nowhere near able to do this. And to do this, that takes three technologies to get good enough. None of them are there yet. And plausibly, they could take another century. But another century is actually faster <laughs> than some ways to estimate how the other a more standard approach will succeed. And so it still might happen first. We might have brain emulations before we know how to write software and statistical packages that can replace most everything humans do. But isn't your, your contention in the book that it's actually more probable that this will be the route? We'll get, we'll get to emulations before we'll get to sort of super AI, right? Or even just human level AI. I find that plausible, but it's important to, realize, to mention that the book's theme is about what would happen if we had emulations. Yeah. And so there's a set of topics that I'm not really focused on in the books. One of them is arguing for exactly when we'll get there and the relative probabilities of different things. It just seemed the main thing I need to say is just likely enough to be worth having a book on. Right. You know, so if, if it was worth having uh, 100 books in the future, it would be worth having a book on the future that had a one on a scenario that had a 1% chance because um, you could fill up 100 books that way. So I just think this definitely has at least a 1% chance. 
I actually think there are reasonable arguments why it's more likely than the other one, but you don't have to buy that to think this is a book worth considering and analyzing because you'd, you'd want to just consider a lot of scenarios. So it's also not a book about philosophy. So when this idea of brain emulation comes up, mostly people are attracted to uh, the questions about when it would happen or whether it would be more likely, and they're attracted to philosophy questions about, well, if you made something, would it be conscious or is it just a machine? And if you made an emulation of me, is that me or someone else? And people have just done those to death for a long time. And I thought they neglected a different question, which was like, what would actually happen? How does the world change? And there's been a lot of fiction embodying uh, characters who are emulations. But of course, it's almost never an attempt to make a realistic description of what the world would be like. It's an attempt to make a dramatic story, which is a fine purpose. But I wanted to want to know what would actually happen. What would this world look like? And in particular, it seemed to me that it was possible to say that. So I've been around futurists for a long time. And a lot of futurists are tech futurists, that is, they know technologies like computer science or physics or biology, and they use their knowledge of those technologies to imagine future technologies and when they might appear and what form they might take. And then when it gets to thinking about social implications, like how does the world change as a result of these technologies, a lot of tech futurists tend to assume that there's nothing you can say. <laughs> because like when I was a physics undergraduate, I was basically told, those people in that social science building over there, that's bullshit. They're making that all up. They don't know anything. The real scientists are over here with real, you know, lab equipment and real mathematical theories and, and that other stuff just is nothing. And so a lot of tech people have been told that. That is, you know, social science is just not real as a science. It doesn't exist. And therefore, since it doesn't reel, it can't really tell you about the social implications of anything, and therefore you can't rely on it to figure out social implications. So if you're wondering about social implications, you might as well just use your own intuition and guesses, and that's the best anybody can do. And so that's what most tech futurists have done, is just apply their own social intuitions to what they think would be the social consequences, as if that was the best anyone could do. And as I have become a professor of economics, and I realized that social scientists know a lot, and it's possible to say a lot about these scenarios with using social science. And so I think the division of labor is for the technologist to guess at which technologies might appear when and in what form, and for the social scientist to say, what happens then? What are the consequences? And so this book is primarily written to show that it's possible to say a lot. If you take a well-defined specific technology scenario, we can run with that. We can turn the crank and say, well, how does the world change? Because we know a lot about that. And so my first priority in this book is to overwhelm you with how many things I can say. <laughs> which, which certainly, which is why I talk about it blowing my mind. I'm like, man, yeah, this is this is a detailed description of an entirely plausible world, which is is so far from my current experience, but yet is not science fiction. This is this could happen, and that was what was so sort of thrilling about reading it for me. And I want to inspire more people to do things like this, to say we could work out more scenarios and work out their consequences. Uh, but in order to show that, I, I really tried to overwhelm with the detail. And then that comes somewhat at the expense of readability. Yeah, admit. it's a pretty dense book. <laughs> yeah, it takes some commitment. Right. Uh, it, it doesn't have as much of a dramatic story arc. Uh, it's not some overall argument where I'm arguing for a, you know, a few major conclusions. It's mainly, the conclusion is, you could say a lot about a scenario like this, 
way to convince you of that is to say a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, the largest scale conclusions that you can draw are ones you should have expected anyway, had you thought about it, which is just given how different our world is from our ancestors' worlds, a future world will be quite different as well. And you might nod and think in the abstract that's true, but you don't really believe it <laughs> in some sense until you, you know, see a very concrete worked out way of that. Because what you kind of might want to do is assume a lot of details will change, but the fundamental things that you like about your world won't change. But those things can change too. <laughs> so uh, many people have noticed we've had some trends over the last few centuries. And they like to think of those trends as fundamental and things that won't change. So a lot of you know increasing wealth per person, so which has led to increasing leisure, increasing art, uh, increasing um, travel, increasing attitudes in many ways. And so a lot of the attitudes over the last few centuries, uh, many people like to attribute to moral progress. We've just discovered moral truth and their ancestors didn't know. But more plausibly, most of them are actually due to our increasing wealth. It's increasing wealth that makes us more interested in democracy, less interested in slavery, more interested in, in larger scope uh, institutions and, and larger concerns of the world, uh, makes us less fertile, um, less warlike. Um, these are consequences of our increasing wealth and many people celebrate these and they imagine futures where these continue, which of course is plausible in the short run, Star Trek futures, the culture novels, where our descendants get even richer, get even more uh, fulfilled, authentic, uh, you know, uh, moral, uh, democratic, et cetera. Uh, but that's just not guaranteed in the long run to be the trend. Uh, it's only been true for a couple of centuries, and that's mainly because we've had a lot of improvement in technology and, and social organization, but we have not had much improvement in reproduction in terms of the speed and cost, at least. We can't make babies faster or cheaper than we did a thousand years ago. Uh, and that meant, since we can only make babies so fast and we can make the economy grow faster, their wealth per person is increasing. But as soon as we have a new technology for making reproduction of things like people, or that substitute for people, then the wealth per person can fall all the way back down to subsistence again, where it was through most of history. And so that world need not continue with our attitudes and trends. And that was one of the shocking claims of the book is that in an emulated world, it may well be the case that we, we drop to subsistence level, right? Right. But if you understood why we are above subsistence now, you realize it's not a robust thing that you should expect to happen forever. And because in an emulated world, our ability to replicate humans is very cheap. And, and fast. And fast. So today, an ordinary factory can make as much as that as the value of that factory in a few months. So if we could grow everything in our economy in factories, the whole economy could be doubling every few months. But instead, we take 15 years to double the economy, which is a remarkable fast rate compared to our ancestors, but still much slower than what factories can do. So why is the economy growing so much slower than what factories can make? Well, because people are an important part of the economy and you can't make people that fast. But as soon as you can make a th something that substitutes for people in a factory, well, the economy could grow much faster. But uh, as soon as you can make things to substitute for people in factories, 
now you could make them even faster <laughs> than the economy can grow. And so wages could fall. Now, this doesn't mean the people are miserable. I mean, it's good to be rich, not so good to be poor, but it's just not true that being living in subsistence is a total hell and you'd be better off dead. It's not even true in most of our actual history. I mean, it might have been true at some times and places, uh, but it's even less true for these emulations because um, they live and work in virtual reality mostly. And in virtual reality, they never need to have any hunger, pain, disease, grime. Their bodies are always beautiful. They can be immortal. They have you know, challenging intellectual jobs. They aren't digging ditches. And so the main thing that subsistence wages does, it means they have to work most of the time. They don't get as much time for leisure. But their work is mentally challenging. And again, their bodies are beautiful. They don't need to feel pain. Uh, it can be an engaging life for them. But poor one in the sense that they don't have much spare money to afford spare time. Right. But, but they could still suffer depression. Of course, as can we. <laughs> and as we do. It's actually not clear that uh, poor people have mental illness rates higher than rich people. It's actually quite surprising to modern mental health professors, professionals, when they go to poor countries, they find much lower rates of most of the mental illnesses that we report in rich countries. I mean, I, I went to Africa for a year or gap year when I was 18, and that was one of the things that struck me about traveling in Africa. It's Very little mental was, illness. Yeah, just yeah. One of, yeah, I mean, I wasn't making a study of mental illness, but just the, just just how happy people appeared. And of course, in my mind, it's like, well, these places are yeah. cool. Why right. right. I mean, I, I think I mean, what happier. That was my impression. Was right. Well, happier. I mean, there, there is this overall correlation with happiness where being wealthy seems to make people happier. That seems consistent. Now, they don't have more happier, richer people don't have more meaning. They have more happiness. So uh, meaning, the difference between meaning and happiness is just depending on the scope you're asked to consider. So if we ask you, how do you feel at the moment about yourself, then that's happiness. If we say, how do you feel about your whole life or just some wide scope, then that's more meaning. And poor people actually do seem to have as much or even more meaning as rich people, in part because they're more religious, which seems to give a lot of meaning. Uh, I, I think what's going on is that people feel they should show concern for the poor that is and they want to show empathy for the poor that they are rich but they do care for the poor and one way to show is to is to sympathize with their complaints if they have them and so they end up going to an extreme of saying their complaints are so good that uh, their lives must be horrible and it must be worth you know better off being dead than poor which, as you say, is, is not at all plausible given if you actually hang around real poor people, and especially in a society full of poor people. You can be more gripey as a poor person when you're the lone poor person around lots of rich people, because now in addition to being materially deprived, you are status-proof deprived. You are look worse than other people, and you feel the pain of, of having lower status. But of course, in a poor nation, they're mostly comparing themselves to each other, so um, most of them don't feel especially poor in terms of status. Hmm. And, and back to the say emulated work. So, so let's say Richard emulated Richard exists. So I, I'm making less 
And of course, it's unlikely that emulated Richard does exist, at least in the first instance, because we're taking billionaires. So unless I make a couple of billion in the next few years. Well, it's it's not actually billionaires. I mean, the very first might be billionaires, but soon it will be the most productive people. So the emulation world is very competitive in the sense that um, it can take any one worker and make billions of copies of them. And so each profession is dominated by the few most productive workers in that profession. And so if you're the best software engineer or the best uh, lawyer, then there's just lots of copies of you. You don't have to be a billionaire. Billionaires will pay to you know hire, hire you because you're the best. But now the problem is that if you see it that way, most emulations are now copies of the few hundred most productive humans. And the other 7 billion humans don't really have a place. <laughs> At least they don't have a place to get paid for what they do. Okay. So let's say I'm the most productive management consultant, let's say. And now I'm, now, I'm, uh, now I'm Richard, emulated Richard, uh, and there's a thousand of me. Uh, and that's what you talk about, right? Clans of, of cloned individuals. Um, so how else? So, okay, so I'm not making as much. Um, I'm working really hard. What, right. what else is true of my emulated life? Well, for one thing, you have all these other copies of yourself to interact with as a new unit of social organization. So today, you join units such as uh, families and firms and cities. And within these units, you have to cooperate and coordinate and worry about how much you can trust other people in these units. We tend to trust our families the most because they seem to have our interests most at heart. Uh, but we still have a lot of conflict within families. Uh, if you had an identical twin, you might think of your identical twin as even more like you and feel even more tied to them and willing to trust them. Well, M's who are come from the same human are even more like each other than identical twins are. And they can have millions of them. So they have this new unit they can use to trust for trusted interactions. They can get insurance this way. They can get reputation this way. They can use it as a unit of law and politics and finance. And so uh, they basically feel that an organization that's big has their back and can trust it uh, because they have this set of all the copies of the same person. There's still some conflict within these, these groups, but it's much less than we experience in most of our existing organizations. Um, that's one thing to say. Another is that these emulations have a, actually a finite career length. So they're emulated Computers can last forever. They can replace the hardware if it you know, wears out. But their software will degrade with time. So human minds start out with fluid intelligence when we're young and move to crystallized intelligence when we're old. And crystallized intelligence knows more but doesn't learn things as well. Because of this, eventually each M will have to retire and be replaced by a younger version of itself. Uh, but through this process, each M has a much better vision of their future because they can see older versions of themselves all around and see what their lives are like. So M's are much less likely to be blinded by a marriage that doesn't work. Older versions of themselves married somebody else who is an older version, and if that worked out, then it's more likely to work for them. Uh, they, they, they have a much better idea what careers to take and where to live and what even hobbies to try because there's older versions of themselves who did all this before. Um, and so that means they're, again, those lives are more secure in that way too. They can take these. Now, you know, it might be that the entire profession is at risk if they're a lawyer and maybe, you know, automation is threatening the whole profession and then there are risks for them, but there's much less of a risk about whether they are personally suited for some particular kind of profession. 
as it exists. And whether they're suited for a neighborhood or whether they're suited for a spouse, those things are all pretty well known. Okay. Another big thing about M's is that they can run at different speeds. And this means that uh, they tend to run much faster than human speed. And so even though their world is growing much faster than ours, from the typical emulations point of view, their world is changing more slowly. So again, they have a more secure, predictable, understandable world than you do. Because they can, they run up typically a thousand times human speed. Uh, and in their economy doubles every subjective century, as opposed to every 15 years. So slower change. Uh, it also means they can retire cheaply. So today, in order to retire, you need to have nearly as much money and income as you have when you're not retired, if your lifestyle isn't to change too dramatically. But for an emulation, they can just retire at a slower speed. And that means they can retire cheap. It also means most of the retirees are slow and a lot more like humans. And so they're, they share the human vulnerability to the whole stability of the civilization. So uh, the age of M I've described uh, as an entire civilization that from the point of view of the typical emulation lasts for thousands of years. But from the point of view of the typical human lasts a year or two. And that means humans should be quite concerned about what happens next and what happens over thousands of years of a civilization. You know, wars and revolutions would be quite threatening if they happen very often. You know, that any, if a revolution that happens every hundred years from the point of view of a, of a um, emulation happens every month from the point of view of the humans, and, then, and they're quite at risk of that, but they share that risk with the retirees. So the retirees are slow, and so the retirees have this collective interest in promoting stability so that they can have a stable retirement. And the, and the humans care about what's happening in M-World? Well, because they are at risk to it. Yeah, so quickly, humans all have to retire. They really can't make money working. But they, if they own any investments in the M-World, their investments grow as fast as the M-World does. So when M-World doubles every month, their investments double every month. Right. So they're very quickly being the rich capitalists, enjoying the wealth of the immoral. But of course, that makes them at risk to instability in the immoral. The rich capitalists have always been at risk to instability in the societies they sit in. Right. So this M world is a wealth generating machine for real humans. Right. We put but our I, most capable humans in there. We have them generating an economy and, and, and we extract the wealth from that emulated economy back into human economy. Under stability. <laughs> Uh, but under instability, uh, it could come out and bite you. In the same way, in the same way that aristocrats in the past, you know, they they had their estates and lived comfortably on them. And if wealth was generated elsewhere, it came back to them. But there was always the risk that the place where the wealth was generated would turn around to bite them. So humans need to be, you know, to to tend to this M world along with the emulated. M retirees, yeah, the M retirees in. Right. So they have a common interest in promoting it, but honestly, they don't have that much influence overall. Uh, they might want to. You can imagine them trying to make sure it's, it's very much under their thumb or even enslaved, but I just can't see that lasting very long. Right. Um, and is, are there similar risks that so people obviously worry about disobedient AI in, in the way we think about AI in terms of physical robots? Uh, and is there, a, is there a risk of disobedient M's? Well, I mean, 
VMs are very human-like, and so it, it, it does work to think of them in human terms. And so you might just ask, you know, what happens when your children or grandchildren disobey you? Is that a possibility? Is it likely? Well, in, so far in history, it's been pretty likely. Uh, our descendant generations have quite often disagreed with us. And when the time is ripe, they are able to have their way instead of our way. Uh, and so the M's sit in that sort of position. Uh, they would quickly become the children who grew up to be richer and stronger than their parents and grandparents. And if they have different preferences, they win. That's just the default thing to presume. Now, if you think that's terrible, you could work really hard to figure out how to keep them under control. But just know, so far, we haven't succeeded much at that. And you talk about ends sharing institutions with humans, right? Yes, of course. So, um, so today, it's worth noting that we have retirees around, and we could kill them and take their stuff. But we don't. <laughs> well, we in fact, there are some human societies that do kill their elderly, right? Right, there have been. And often the elderly are, you know, enculturated to to accept that and find that as, you know, to find it intolerable to be a burden on the younger generations and to willingly uh, end. Uh, in, fact, in fact, there's a great story when I was in, living in Africa of a, of a tribe and they took one of the elders out and tied them to a tree um, to have them eaten by lions. And then one of the, 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 the uh, villagers passed by the tree a few days later and... <laughs> The guy's still there, and he hasn't been eaten by the lion, so they had time and bring him back to the village. And he <laughs> it was another five years. Misjudgment. <laughs> okay, I. Well, that sounds like a story that you're not quite sure to believe. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> but it's a good story. All right, so well, we haven't killed our elderly, and and one of the reasons we could think of that is that they share institutions with the rest of us it would be really quite disruptive to organize an effort to kill the elderly and take their stuff because they are part of our institutions of finance and law and governance. And within those institutions, they have rights and powers. And we'd have to change those institutions substantially to take away those rights and powers. Uh, and that would be disruptive because now if that became possible, a bunch of other people wonder who's next. <laughs> you can kill the elderly and take their stuff. How come you can't take the left-handers and take their stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, where does this stop? Uh, and so that would just be very disruptive and threatening. And it's probably simpler and safer for us just to leave the institutions alone and let the elderly spend their retirement income. It's not too big. And that's probably true for the M's as well. If the M's are embedded in institutions they share with humans, then it would be safer probably for them to leave those institutions alone. The more that humans and M's have separate institutions, of course, the less of a risk there is of that. So nations have been willing to invade other nations because they don't share the institutions of those other nations. And they don't threaten the institutions within their own nations by invading and attacking another nation, at least unless they have a lot of detailed, intertwined financial connections and other institutional connections. And as you may know, in, in world wars, <laughs> Uh, nations often went out of the way to uh, not mess with uh, firms that had cross-national uh, re relationships. Hmm. Um, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a statistic about um, 
McDonald, right? You know, is, is it still the case there's never been a country that's gone to war where they've both got a McDonald's? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So you ask, another big thing you can say about the M world is they're mostly crammed into a small number of dense cities. And this is another reason why humans can be left alone, because um, if, if the M's were really eager to spread out across the earth and take all the land, well, the humans would be in the way. But the M's are really eager to cram really close to each other <laughs> into a smooth, small number of very dense cities. And as a result of this, they're not really very interested in most of the places that humans are. Um, and uh, it's mainly because M's can uh, commute much more cheaply. <laughs> so for us to move around a city, we have to move ourselves physically, and that gets in each other's way when we're trying to move. For the M's, they can have a virtual reality meeting where they see themselves as in the same room, but they didn't actually have to move their brains. They can just send the bits that represent where they are in the room, et cetera. And so that allows them to interact with anybody in a city much more cheaply. Uh, they don't actually have to move there. They just virtually move there as if they had moved there. Uh, and so that's why the M's can really cram together into a small number of very dense cities, which would then be very hot. So, uh, you know, trying to cram as much computer hardware into a small space as possible would be a huge priority. And so cooling that all that hardware is a huge priority. And so, in fact, I estimate, you know, the M's spend as much on the space for cooling pipes as they do on the space for everything else. Cooling pipes take up half the volume in the city. And actually they spend as much on energy and cooling as they spend on the hardware. Uh, so energy and cooling are, are more important in this economy than they are in ours. So cooling pipes is a safe, is a hot, high-tech future in the immoral. <laughs> right. Or perhaps we put them under the ocean. Well, even then, you, you'll, yes, you'll have to do the cooling pipes. I mean, it is quite plausible that you might do that in order to gain access to more, you know, coolant. Uh, the ocean so far has turned out to be a very harsh environment for putting physical devices in. So unless they find a way to, uh, you know, make that much better, they, they would probably stay with land. But uh, they might stay right next to the ocean and uh, have seawater pulled in through the cooling pipes, even if the rest of the city is not uh, under seawater. Right. And what about the, um, what about the culture? I mean, do we, do we expect it to be much like ours in terms of the sort of mixed economies, governments and, and some, some level of free market? Is it more, yeah, what, what, how do you see? So, you know, I'm trying to use as many cultural levers as I can to understand that, of course, we have a limited number of levers in understanding culture. But one lever is the one I already mentioned, the fact that we see these predictable trends about how cultures change with wealth, individual wealth. And so you, you expect those changes to be reversed. We'll go back to the kind of cultures that are more common when people are poor. Uh, another thing is that because most everybody's in a few big, big dense cities, it's a very urban culture. And uh, the differences between nations and cities disappears. They are city-states. Uh, you also have the, a much larger population, so you have much more fragmentation of, uh, you, know, you, you know, today you might live in a big city and say, I couldn't live in a small town because there's not enough going on there. Well, their cities are so much bigger than yours, they, they would say that about your cities. <laughs> far more variety of suppliers and kinds of restaurants and kinds of recreation activities and kind of clubs. It was vastly larger, more variety of those things possible. 
because their cities are much larger than yours. Make London look like sort of backwater. Exactly, indeed. Town. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the group, the typical group size has actually has an interesting pattern across history. I don't know if we have a theory for it, but you know, ordinary primates before humans that might have a, a group size of say five or six or something, six or seven, an ordinary group size, human group sizes were around 30, which is roughly the square of five or six. And then forager, farmer group sizes were about a thousand. Small village, village area, that's the square of 30. And our group sizes are typically more about a million. The size of a small nation or a big city, city area, which is the square of a thousand. <laughs> Project the strand forward, you say the next unit is the square of a million or a trillion. You'd say the typical M city size is a trillion which is a million millions, you know, a million cities of a million crammed together. Much larger and more dense and intricate. Uh, we, we have a bunch of dimensions by which cultures vary, so we can predict that uh, some of these dimensions of cultural variations are ones that just make sense in terms of productivity advances. So say a time orientation, uh, some cultures have an event orientation and some have a clock orientation. The clock orientation is just an obvious win from the point of view of an advanced industrial economy where you need to coordinate a lot of activities. And so you can easily predict M's would continue to have a clock orientation about time. You know, so I go through a number of those things in the book about <clears throat> some dimensions that obviously would continue. Uh, similarly, some cultures have more of a literal orientation about how they use words and uh, commitment and promises and others have a much more context dependent orientation for what it means to say you'll meet at three or, or, or I, I, yes I'll do this well in a more formal uh, in, you know economy with more formal contracts and more distant relationships it makes much more sense to be more literal about these things so you know that sort of thing would continue so again there's a number of those kind of dimensions of culture that you can just walk through one by one and predict that some of them have a, have a predictable value for that and are you making predictables predict predictions about the impact of this society which is almost exclusively very high iq high conscientiousness right uh, individuals who are then cloned <laughs> multiple times i mean it's quite hard to predict exactly how that would well, so, so the the clans, as I call them, these groups of people, mm. all of whom copied from the same individual, that's one of the more unique parts of this world. So that's I've been I did struggle to try to envision the consequences of that. They would rely on those institutions more. Uh, they would also just tend to make work teams and copy teams together. That's a straightforward prediction. So today, say at a franchise like McDonald's or something. You try to set up the franchise so you could create standardized teams that every McDonald's have the same sort of team, but you know there's a lot of variation because uh, you know the, the fry cook will be a certain sort of personality in one location and a different personality in another mm -hmm. location. You have to do a lot of local adaptation to have a standard team structure filled with unique variable people. But for the M's, they can take a team that works better and literally copy the whole team. So uh, that means work groups that, that found a way to work together, in fact, they become a unit of reproduction. It's right, less, you, yeah. yeah. Less copying an individual M and more copying a, a work group that works together. So you find a good team of software engineers who you know work well together. 
you create multiple copies of that and you haven't got to worry about churn necessarily although maybe you would right i mean those those m's would still get fed up with each other and want to move on and, right but they might do it in predictable ways and so it's more like searching in the space of finding teams that work well together and making lots of copies of those teams hmm. but there's an interesting way which you don't betray your team as much for an m so today if you're a software engineer say you you might be hired away by another group of software engineers and then your old team would would lose you and people are worried about you know, how much they can rely on their team members and how much they should be individually or self-reliant versus relying on team members who may not be there in the future. But for M's, they never need to leave a team. They can make a copy that goes to the new team, but they never need to abandon their old team. So you can know that if you're on a team, all your teammates will be with you forever. As long as there's a demand for the team, they will all be with you. It's, it's much more reliable that way. Right, yeah. The other so thing Sorry, you can just form bonds with your team members and form and come to rely on them and come to trust them uh, in the sense that they'll always be there, part of your team. All right. The other idea I thought was fascinating was this idea of having a spur. Right, a short-term copy. So, so today, you know, we work during the day and then we need to rest at night for to be ready for work the next day. So, uh, we we only work one third to perhaps at most a half of our total hours. So at the beginning of a workday for them, they can make a copy and that copy is all ready for work. And then at the end of that workday, they don't have to keep that copy and send it on to the next day. So those spur copies, they have a factor of two or three in productivity, which is a lot. Now they have the disadvantage that they don't remember as much or, or learn from what they did. So if a spur copy learns in their experience during the day, you lose that experience. Uh, and if they saw something you didn't see, you might lose that too, unless they report it and tell other people. So there is a cost to using spurs, but still the factor of two or three in productivity is going to be pretty tempting most of the time. Right. So in fact, most spurs are copies that are working during the day that won't rest that night. Uh, but they're okay with it. Uh, just like, um, you know, we're okay with things that make our productivity uh, high. So, um, now, many people imagine this as a creature who has a short life, and this is terrible. And so I make the analogy to uh, imagine you went to a party and you took a drug that meant you wouldn't remember that party the next day or ever after. Um, you might, at near the end of that party, say to yourself, I'm about to die. <laughs> uh, this person tomorrow who continues, he's not me because he won't remember what I did at this party. You could take that attitude or you could take the attitude, no, I will continue tomorrow. I just won't remember what I did today. Both of those are valid possible attitudes, but I just predict the M's will take the analog of the second of the first of the, of the second attitude. Um, these spur copies could say to themselves, I became a new creature when this copy was made and I will have a short life and then I die and I hate that. Or they could say, I will continue on. I just won't remember what I did in this branch of my, who I was. And it seems obvious that they will take that second attitude because that will get them to do this. It's not because it's philosophically correct. It's just the attitude that gets, that makes them get along. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so stepping back, it's, I mean, I, I think, you know, it shows you a world that's about as alien as you're ever going to see. Yeah. Uh, that is, you, you can see pretty alien worlds if you look back in history, and I recommend you do that. But once you've seen the alien worlds in history, if you want to see 
new alien worlds, you have to look toward the future. And you're often tempted to think that like these changes are permanent from the past and your way is gonna last forever. So to really appreciate how your way might not last forever, it helps to see a vision of how your ways could end. And the future could reject your ways and do things quite differently. And it's not the march of moral progress whereby everything you do is the best way ever and it'll last forever. Uh, many things you do are idiosyncratic to your time and place. And uh, they didn't do them before you and they won't do them after you. Uh, right. And so that helps you see your place in history and your place in the world. And you, it could be you don't like this world. And if it happened, you want to change it somehow. Great. Go for it. I mean, that's one of the advantages of studying the future rather than the past. You, you do have more of a chance of, study, of changing the future. You just have to be well calibrated about how large a change you could plausibly produce. Hmm. If you underestimate how big a change you can make, you, you won't be ambitious enough. But if you overestimate, you will waste your efforts on changes that are larger than you can just manage. Right. And so I, you know, I think if you look in history, if you ask what a thousand years ago, what could somebody realistically have done to make our world better? They could certainly have done some minor things, but changing the entire structure of society, that was probably beyond them. And similarly, you might think if this world is coming, you probably can't change the overall structure of the whole society, but you can make some things better for some people. Right. And you're committed to being part of this, right? I understand it. You, you're I, I would choose. I would choose to be part of it if, if, if that was the world. Oh, certainly over death. Right. Uh, but what, from my understanding, you're you have made a choice to be frozen upon your death and assuming there's an 80% chance of your yeah, I'm a, I'm a brain cryonic, not being destroyed. Cryonic, I'm a cryonic customer and, uh, this, and, and I want to be revived as an emulation. I think that's the earliest thing that would be feasible and, and it's probably the, the right thing to do then rather than try to wait. And then that would make me a candidate for being part of this world. I don't have, think I have much of a chance of being one of the few hundred most productive once certainly you know, for the prior odds are low and in addition i'd be too old that is this m world will put a lot big premium on, on people who are young and flexible able to learn this world uh you want the people with the fluid intelligence right because right, you exactly can't, you can't sort of well we don't well maybe we can at that point re-engineer someone back to having flexible intelligence but, but there's only a few hundred people who have been frozen so far and only a few thousand people who have signed up for it so uh, unless that changes dramatically uh you know, people like me will be quite unusual and unique. So we'll have a place as some sort of historical uh, monument or, I uh, you know. <laughs> so maybe you'll be preserved, yeah, as one of the early humans who took this, this, this step. I, I, I can imagine, you know, grade school classrooms would bring in some people from the old to talk to them because, uh, you know, just as a way to expose them to history, just bring in a few of these ancient people to chat. It is Robin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That could be a life. And every, yeah, it could be a life, right? An emulated life. That's the. That's right, and it could be the, nice life. Yeah, no, I can see that. Maybe that's the. Maybe that's the place to end it. Wow. <laughs> it's like it's, it's not it's, soon. It's not you know plausibly in a century or, or so would be roughly when this would happen. It's not not right around the corner. But then neither is the other kind of AI right around the corner, contrary to what you might have heard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yes. I mean, some people, yeah, well, let's not get into that. That's probably another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Well, we've, we're coming up on two hours here, so it's probably uh, time to end. But I've, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, 
happy to talk again sometime if you want to talk yeah, about no, it. Yeah, no, I, I loved it. You know, it's, it's a fantastic, and, and hopefully I've given people a taste of M World, but it feels like, you know, there's, there's so well, much richness. I, in I, I hope somebody will write fiction based on it, but I'm not well-placed to write fiction, at least I so mean, that, that's what occurred to me. You know, it's, it's, it's calling for a book to write, you know, the story of even it. Uh, right. Of Robin but, in M World. But even as a book, it will be strange in the sense that most future fiction is set to be a morality tale. So it's set to be like our world and echoing similar morality issues. Yeah. And, and a real future will just be so strange that your familiar morality issues won't project very well onto it. Mm. And, so, and the morality issues of those characters will not be familiar to you. Uh, and so it will be less engaging as a morality tale, which is mostly what we like our books to be. Yeah. But it could still be an interesting book to read. Fantastic. Well, let's hope somebody writes it and maybe that will be uh, the next time uh, we can analyze the book. I'm happy Fantastic. to help anybody trying. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll speak again. Take care for this time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Robin. See you. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.